opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, we have shirts for sale now, so go on to our website at www.freshlybrewednoir.com and use code FBN2023 for $5 off your purchase. We currently are selling in the U.S. and working on international sales. Thanks you guys for your support. Hello and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 52, The Mysterious Deaths in Auburn, California. You didn't say Georgia. Good job. I didn't. I almost did. did. I mean, the C and the G look (laughs) very similar. We have an Auburn in Georgia, too. We do, as we know you said. (laughs) As I messed up on the end of the last episode when I was promoting this one. It happens when it's very early and we're not caffeinated enough. We just recorded episode 51. It's really early. We're doing 52 because we have a lot going on today. And we're trying to be productive. Yeah, we are. It's great. But we're going to California for this episode. It's the first time you've taken us to California. (laughs) Usually Jennifer will take us to California and I'll do the Georgia episodes, but the rules are reversed on this one. Yeah, because one of your Cali friends. Yes, Kristen. Thank you for this recommendation. We appreciate you for this. This is one that is kind of unknown. It's got to be. She sent me a link to a YouTube video, and it's a documentary titled Everyone Counts, an Auburn documentary. And it's narrated by Christine Kraft, who was a television reporter and anchor for several decades, covering heavy topics from politics to rape and murder cases. And she even challenged sex discrimination in the TV news industry as a federal litigant before she became a lawyer. Ooh, she sounds like a badass. She is. And so she is the one that narrates this and I think she may have produced it too. If you like this episode and want to know more, there's more information in the documentary. I obviously didn't cover all of it, but that's where I got a lot of my information from was this amazing documentary. I'm curious to see how everything's like linked up and like how they figure something fishy is going on. Yeah. And what Christine believes is that people who do not have high social class or economic status may not matter in certain communities. And so um, to her, everybody should matter. And what happens to them should also matter. But it doesn't sound like that was the case in Auburn, California. Yeah. And we've seen that in episodes we've covered before where it's like social status definitely matters, economic status and the community you live in. Yes. It all matters and how your case is going to get investigated and the, the media attention it gets. Right. So this episode is about a string of deaths in Auburn, California that were ruled either accidental or suicide rather quickly by the police. But some think the social or economic status of the residents may have caused their deaths to go without investigation or even that there was a serial killer in Auburn around that time. We are going to talk about the 10 cases, and I'm interested to hear what you think, Jennifer. I'd also be interested to hear what any of our other California listeners think of this. Or if you are a listener who is actually living in Auburn, California, let us know your thoughts, and we will link to the documentary in our show notes for anyone who wants to watch it. Shall we begin? Let's do Shall it. We dive in? Yeah, because we handled our business in the previous episode. So, Do we have any more business? No. They already know about Justin, that he lost his chance, so <laughs> Jennifer's taken. 
Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unless you're from California, you probably haven't heard of the town of Auburn. It's a small town in Placer County with a population of only around 13,000. So I think it's like 13,800 something. It's located eastward. If you're heading out of San Francisco, which most people know about, you're going to go past Sacramento and you're going towards Lake Tahoe, which some people may be familiar with Lake Tahoe. It's an exit on the way to Tahoe off of I-80. And the town is a historical landmark in California and has that gold rush history. So it's a place some schools will take day trips to for educational purposes, sort of like Georgia's town of Dahlonega with the gold mines. Auburn also has tons of water that comes down from the Sierra Mountains and flows into large icy canals, and they still have active rail lines. In a small town like Auburn, California, everyone pretty much knows each other, and it was mentioned in the documentary I watched that the police force is not often questioned. With that being said, keep in mind that there was not a string of deaths in the previous year, which was 2008, but then 2009 rolls around. And in a little over a year, six people are found dead in the canal and one is found dead on the train tracks. Residents begin to suspect that a serial killer may be in their town, with the deaths being so close together and most having been found dead in the same manner. There are also three further suspicious train track deaths several years later. The police did little, if any, investigation before ruling the deaths as either accidental or suicides, and this was sometimes within hours of the bodies being found, which you know they can't really do before an autopsy anyway. Right. The editor of the Auburn Journal during this time, Derek Rothy, published a column about why there were so many deaths so close together and stated that the newspaper thought there may be a serial killer in their town. Law enforcement responded that it may be a sensational way for the Auburn Journal to sell newspapers, but that it was homeless people who were getting drunk, falling asleep by the canals, and falling in. Rothy questioned the theory, though, and said that he thought even the homeless community were going to stay away from that area if it was dangerous and other homeless people were found dead. Which makes sense, even if somebody is drunk. If they know other homeless people have been falling into the canal, they're going to go away from that area. They're not just going to hang out there a lot. Yeah. So to him, it didn't make sense just to say, oh, well, they're homeless and they're drunk. That's what's happening. He said, homeless people talk. Homeless people know if somebody goes missing or is found dead. Yeah. And so they know if there's a dangerous area. It's not like they don't have common sense. Exactly. Or like minds of their own. Right. Gordon Ansley, public official and former Auburn Parks and Rec chief, said that when he heard about the first drowning, he didn't really think anything of it. Then there was a second drowning. And by the third one, he thought there was something going on. And then a fourth death happened. One thing he said that I thought was really interesting was the fact that there was nothing that could justify having no deaths by the canal for the past five years and then five deaths in a year and a quarter. That should raise eyebrows and the police should be like, hmm, so the last five years, nobody has died in these canals and then we have five deaths in a little over a year. That's strange. Yeah. Ansley decided to call the police chief, Valerie Harris, and offered his services to pretend to be a homeless person and walk along the canal while being monitored by the police in an undercover type of operation to catch the person who may be killing these homeless people. 
The police didn't want to take him up on that offer and proceeded to tell him that they didn't believe anyone was being murdered. Wow. So, so they well, you were have a firm. Volunteer. And then I thought about that. I'm like, well, maybe liability. The police aren't going to take somebody in the community and use them as bait for a serial killer if there was one. But then they didn't do anything either to, you know, stake out the place and look for somebody who may have been attacking homeless people. And then what is the common cause of death between all of these bodies? Drowning. Just drowning. Well, we'll get into that. Okay. So they were still firm that these were accidental deaths, the police force. Then Larry DeMates and Jim Goodrich, two veteran private investigators, and of course, Christine Kraft, who I mentioned, the reporter and the lawyer who created this documentary, wanted to find out more about the mysterious string of deaths. Larry DeMates actually knew David Miller, the first canal case, from his previous job in social work and said that he was an intelligent guy and that when the police put out to the press that David was an intoxicated homeless guy who fell into the canal, it didn't sit right with him. He actually knew David and said that he had owned his own mobile home in a nice park nearby and had a brand new pickup truck. DeMates also was confused by the police saying David was intoxicated because when he knew him, he was not a big drinker at all. He said he would have a beer, but he would not get drunk. P.I. Jim Goodrich, a former Navy SEAL and reserve police officer, said that what first caught his attention about the deaths was what didn't take place, like securing the crime scene and doing a preliminary investigation where they would look for witnesses and interview a few people, take photos, all that stuff that seems basic. For none of the victims? <laughs> none. Wow. And in all of the cases in the canal or on the train tracks, none of that took place. I think that definitely raises some flags. Yeah. This is some questions. So let's talk about the cases. David Miller died January 14th, 2009, was 53, and he was the first canal death. He had gone to Placer High and worked in the area at his dad's construction business, but a motor vehicle accident in the 80s left him disabled. But he was not homeless, owning a mobile home in the area and having a new truck. Brian Miller, David's brother, told Christine that his brother had enough money to live on from his disability and that they had some money their dad had left them after he passed. So David had around twenty to $30,000 stashed away. So definitely not homeless. Yeah, seems like he's just living his life. Yeah. And Brian drove from Idaho several times to question police for answers about his brother's death. Not getting answers from the police, Brian spoke to some witnesses by the canal. They were construction workers who told him that they saw David the day he died and he was running, about to jump off a 10-foot wall. But the construction workers told him that it was too high and they actually convinced him to come down a little further where the wall dropped off to two or three feet and they said they would help him down. So basically, this guy is running, looks scared, about to jump off a temple wall. They're like, no, what are you doing? And he said, somebody's chasing me. And they said, well, come down this way. You can jump down and we'll help you. So oh, he wow. was about to jump off a 10-foot wall. They convinced him to go down to where it stepped down to two or three feet. They helped him down. But they don't know who was chasing him. No, they don't. But he told them he was being chased. And Brian said that his brother didn't suffer from any mental illnesses that he was aware of. And he went to report what he had found out to the police. The police sent one officer out to interview the construction workers. He told Brian a report would be filed, but Brian never heard anything after that. Candy Carraway, David's girlfriend at the time, said she and David had broken up just before he died, and shortly afterwards, Candy went up to a casino in Reno, Nevada, it's about an hour and a half away, with a man named John, who David did not like. John was apparently very curious about where David's car keys were kept and was asking Candy a lot of questions about that. 
And one of the thoughts is that either that's where he kept his money that he had gotten, or maybe the guy just wanted to take his car. But this guy, John, wanting to know like where David wore his car keys, kept his car keys. And I guess he always kept them clipped to his belt buckle is what Candy said. But Candy was getting annoyed with John asking these questions. And then John got annoyed with Candy and basically left her stranded in Reno. When Christine poses a hypothetical question to Candy about whether or not John could have overtaken David in a fight, Candy confirmed that John was bigger and stronger than David, and since David was disabled and had bad knees, John would win a fight between them, but that David would definitely try to defend himself. Candy said that the police never contacted her about David's death, even though it was well known that she and David lived together in his trailer. She had mail coming to the trailer. She lived with him. It would not have been hard for police to realize he's living with somebody, so maybe she knew something. Let's go ask the ex-girlfriend some questions. Yeah, so they wouldn't have even looked into John then. No, because they never even talked to Candy. Okay, some great police work. Demates and Goodrich noted that David's cane, one shoe, and shirt were not on his body when found in the canal. And in the documentary, the investigators demonstrate how David could have been attacked in such a way where his shirt was pulled off in the struggle to get his keys from his side. And then if David falls to the ground and tries to kick at the attacker or attackers, his shoe would have been pulled off or come off in the struggle. Then he could have easily been tossed into the canal. The autopsy report did not show that he was intoxicated, but did show a deep blunt force head wound and there was gray-brown soil under David's fingernails and in the palms of his hands. The police hinted at, well, he probably does construction or work and that's why he has dirt in his hands. But remember, he's been on disability for decades. So So they just assumed. Right. What the investigators think the soil found under his fingernails and on the palms of his hands mean it was due to a struggle and him being dragged along the ground like in a fight so they think he was palms down trying to get away from somebody and that's how he got the dirt under the fingernails i mean that definitely sounds possible i wonder if that's going to be a common pattern with the rest of the victims there's at least one other victim that did have soil in the fingernails But it sounds like John was never questioned and that there was like a possible motive. Yes. Because he was, you know, inquiring about the money. Yeah. Was the money still there? Was it? Yeah, the money was there. His truck was there and everything. So they didn't get it from him. But he was was attacked. Someone was able to get to him. Yeah. It sounds like he may have been attacked. I don't know. My thought on this one is that whoever this John guy is was trying to steal his car or get the money and it was a struggle. And then he fell into the canal or was pushed into the canal when they couldn't get his keys or find his keys. Okay. And then that would explain why nothing was taken. Yeah. Because they're not going to go after him at that point. His body's in the canal, so they're out of luck as far as trying to get the keys off of him anymore. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Bradford Ashcroft, the second canal victim, was 62, and he died July 29th of 2009. Bradford was homeless. However, a confidential informant told DeMates and Goodrich he was walking down Bell Road at night and was wearing night vision goggles that he had just purchased at Goodwill. The CI, which is confidential informant, was not homeless, but stated he stopped in the bushes to relieve himself and then looked across the road and saw what he thinks was three deputies roughing up a man. And then he heard a splash of a body into the canal. He described the homeless man as wearing a long sleeve green shirt and jeans and did say that he could see the deputies clearly with the night vision goggles. The autopsy report referred to the green long sleeve shirt and jeans, which was not spoken of in the media. 
The report also showed defensive wounds on the knuckles and circular bruising around the left wrist, which could be consistent with a handcuff that was too tight. Mm. The sheriff's department reported that he was drunk and had died of a heart attack. The CI also saw unmarked police cars with backseat passenger grills speeding away. Now, at first, they weren't sure about the CI because they said there did seem to be some mental health issues. But they actually went to the spot that he talked about at night when it was dark. And they realized you could see at that place on Bell Road across by the canal. You could clearly make out if somebody was standing there. So he would have been able to hear them talk and he would have been able to see who was there, hear the splash. And also, if he had the night vision goggles, he could probably make out which deputies were there. And it sounds like there's evidence of an assault on the body. I doubt that was looked into, though. It was not. Larry James, 58, died around March 1st, 2010, and so did Nicasio Garcia Bonilla, 42. They both died in the canal around March 1st, 2010. So they're the third and fourth victims, and they have similar similarities surrounding their deaths. So check this out. Neither man was homeless, and both had full-time jobs. Larry was a computer repair technician and owned a home. Nicasio worked for a high-end pool company and was known around town as one of the best custom pool finishers and had a great work ethic and a nice apartment. They were supposedly seen together the night they presumably both died at a Chevy's restaurant. Larry was found dead in the canal just a day or so after he died, and Nicasio was found a few weeks later in the canal. The autopsy report showed Larry had numerous abrasions and multiple broken ribs, which is not consistent with scraping along the side of a canal, so apparently those wounds would be a lot less. And Nicasio was in a state of advanced decomposition. Both men did have above the legal limit of alcohol in their system, But they were at Chevy's, and Chevy's is like a bar grill in California. And so a lot of people go there. Like a Chili's? Yeah, it would be like that. And they go there and eat, have drinks after work. Nobody saw them driving drunk or anything like that. They probably just went after work, drinking buddies. They're having a good time. They were seen in the parking lot talking, but nothing strange. Didn't seem like they were upset. It doesn't make sense to me because they kind of chalked it up like they just threw themselves in the canal or something. I don't know if they think that that's believable that two men with homes and good jobs would just go out drinking together after work and decide to throw themselves in the canal. That doesn't make sense, especially because... Okay, one of those guys, he's a custom pool finisher. I'm sure he knows, like, you don't just jump into a canal in the middle of the night. Yeah, I mean, what are the odds that these two guys know each other, they're going out for drinks, and then they both end up dead? dead. Yes, that's very strange to me. I I don't think they purposely jumped in the canal. They're two guys that seem like they just went out to have some drinks after work, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, and they're successful guys. Yeah. So So it just doesn't make sense. It's not suicide, and there's defensive wounds on one of them. And, of course, the other body was so decomposed, they weren't able to make out if there was defensive wounds. I wonder if it's someone who, like, knew them, like if it was a targeted thing. Because if they were friends, maybe it was, like, a common, a mutual person. I don't know. But that still doesn't, like, explain why these were chalked up to homeless people. Who were drunk. Yep. In the media, they're still saying the people that fall in are homeless and intoxicated. And they were intoxicated, but they're not homeless men, you know, either trying to commit suicide or falling asleep and falling in. These are just two men that went out drinking to have fun after work and never came back. 
so far, three of the four are not homeless. Right. So, weird narrative. We have four people now dead due to the canal in a short span of time. And even after these two deaths of clearly not homeless people, law enforcement kept insisting to the media that all the canal deaths were just drunk homeless people. I don't get that. Just to give maybe a reason as to why they're not really looking into it. Maybe a sense of safety. Who knows? Maybe you don't want to tell your community there could be a serial killer. I don't know. Matthew Templeton, age 40, died on May 5th, 2010. He was the fifth canal death. Matt had a degree in chemistry, was fluent in multiple languages, owned property, which gave him rental income, and was an iconoclastic person. He had close ties to family in Oregon, but chose to live in nature and preferred the company of animals to that of humans. We can understand this. Oh, I totally get that. <laughs> he wanted to do his own thing. You know, iconoclastic. He didn't like living in a structured society. He camped and hiked and ended up living in a tent near the canal. But that was his preference. We have to be clear about that. He wasn't homeless due to financial circumstances. He actually liked living out on his own. And his sister said that he would jump in the canal in like one state, float down to another state, get out, hitch a ride back to another place. So he just loved that kind of lifestyle. Yeah, some people like that. I do not. It's not for everybody, but this was the way he lived and he really preferred it. And his sister, Carrie, would often send Matt some money and a cell phone and they talked often. She said her brilliant brother never really fit into society. And when he'd go to friends' homes and bring his dog and the dog would be all over their couch, he didn't understand why the friend would get upset or even ask him to leave. I think he just was one of those types of humans that just did well in nature around animals and was probably misunderstood a bit. I can see that. I mean, sounds like that was just his, his way of life. Like, I'm not knocking it. If you can do it, more power to you. Right. Like, no taxes? <laughs> hey. We, we talked about taxes. <laughs> we did talk about taxes. Oh, those are but it stressful. Was a, <laughs> yeah, it was an okay year. Shout out to my tax man. Of course. On the last phone call she had with her brother. Shortly before he died, Carrie said that he called and was very upset and told her that the police had threatened him that day. When she asked him what they said, he told her they said, you better leave town or else. She said he was not a dramatic person, so this was unusual for him to be so upset. Carrie asked if he wanted help and needed to leave town, and he told her he needed to think about it. When her brother was found a few weeks later in the canal wearing three pairs of pants, Carrie said she knew Matt, having been an avid swimmer who had taken lifeguard classes when he was younger and who would float down the canals into different towns, that he would never put on three pairs of pants to go swimming. Carrie went to Auburn and was given the wrong autopsy report at first. She also said that there was no investigation into her brother's death, which sent a message that they didn't care. One local who would walk his dog near the canal and was actually friends with Matt and would bring him food or would visit him at his camp. And he said that he had never seen law enforcement actually be physical with a homeless person in the area, but that he did see a strange man near the canal and did report it a couple of times to law enforcement, but that nobody ever cared to follow up. So now we have a report of a possible strange man hanging around the area of the canal. And, and it's just, a, it's during this time where all during these... during this time where all these strange deaths are happening, yes. Did they say that he was wearing 
three pairs of pants. Yeah, when he was when found. He was swimming. Wouldn't that make him heavier? Like, exactly. Was, like, used to swimming all the time? That's why, why his sister that? says it's so strange. She said he would never do that. He was an avid swimmer. He knew the risk of going into the water on his own. He still was a great swimmer to be able to swim throughout these canals. But then he wouldn't put on three pairs of pants to do it. Right. But then even if, say, you know, someone did murder him, what would be the purpose of putting on all his pants? So it'd be hard to swim, hard to survive? Could be, yeah. Just adding that extra weight on Possibly. Make it look like it was a a suicide or like it was somebody who didn't know what they were doing in the water and drowned. It's just unusual. And all of these deaths so far, there's been an abrupt end to their life. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, if they say it's accidental... There's usually not, like, something urgent, like, you need to get out of town, or someone's being chased, um, like the first victim, or the two friends that ended up, you know, in the canal. It's just, it's very strange. It is. What are the odds of all of these being accidental in such a short amount of time? There's no way that it could be accidental. The chances of having five years of nobody drowning in the canal, and then you have a little over a year and five people drown, something's going on. Yeah. In his actual autopsy report, there were wounds in Matt's temple and on the back of his head, which appeared to be from the muzzle of a gun pressed against his head. The coroner also recommended that Matt's death be investigated, but DeMates and Goodrich stated that there was nothing to show that it was ever looked into. Like assault. If there's a wound on the back of his head. Sounds like a gun was held to the back of his head and at his temple. So somebody was threatening him. What if they told him, put on three pairs of pants, then made him get into the canal? You never know. Yeah. I, I wonder why he was telling his his sister to get out of town. Was he in trouble with the law? Was there something? No, he told his sister the police told him to get out of town. Oh, the police? The police told him to get out of town. Yeah. Oh. He said the police threatened me today and told me to get out of town. And there or was else. no further explanation on that. It sounded like he didn't know why they told him. I wonder if they're just trying to get rid of homeless people in the area. But he wasn't homeless. So he lived by the canal in a tent. So even though he wasn't homeless, he lived like a homeless person. And maybe they didn't like that and they wanted to clean up the area so it looked like a nice place for people to come move to. But this still doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, I but, know. But it's very fishy. After this fifth canal death, PG&E, which is a local utility company, and they usually own areas like this by the water, they erected a chain link fence around the canal. More signs, plus some additional safety buoys to grab onto were also added. DeMates and Goodrich did a ton of interviews, and one of the most frustrating things they said was the fact that employees of a homeless healthcare clinic would not speak on camera about what they knew, even though they had important information about the canal and the upcoming train track deaths that was shared with the PIs off camera such as the interactions between the Placer County Sheriff's Department and the homeless population. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. they couldn't really say anything because they refused to speak on camera. And one lady was actually going to give an interview and backed out at the last minute. And they said they were so disappointed because this information was really important, but they don't have it on the record now. Gosh, I mean, this really does sound like there's some kind of like police corruption happening That's the only thing that makes sense right now. I mean, there is like a a suspicious person that is, you know, found in the area, but who's to say that's not someone that's in the police department 
as well. True. I mean, could be a serial killer. I mean, but it just seems like it's too coincidental that, like, obviously they're not investigating anything mm-hmm. and they don't care to. And even after, like, being told and notified about all these different, like, scenarios, it just, it's strange. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Hill, 50 years old, died November 23rd, 2010. He was the sixth and last person to die in the canal, even though he may have fit the narrative the police were giving since he was homeless, had been in and out of jail, and was on drugs or alcohol. There is still suspicion surrounding Richard's death since it happened after the fence was erected. So he wouldn't have been able to climb over it, is what they're saying. It doesn't make sense. Janet Park lived in a trailer park near the canal. She heard someone pounding on the door of her trailer and looked out her window and said the person wanted a rope or a cord. She was frightened and didn't open the door, so she called the sheriff. They saw the man the next day and told the police, and the sheriff did come out and talk to the man, but didn't speak to anyone in the trailer park and didn't seem interested in following up. So who do they think that is? They, they, think, think, they think it was Richard, possibly. But I mean, they never showed her pictures and confirmed anything. They just came out, they talked to the man, and then they left. They didn't talk to anybody in the trailer park to tell them what was going on, to tell them if it had been resolved or why he was there. I wonder why he would need a cord, though. I don't um, know. That seems like that would be something that could be used like, as a weapon or something. Yeah, it's strange. At, in the middle of the night? It was later. And mm. she said she was really scared. Yeah, I wouldn't open there was, I wouldn't open the no. door either. Yeah. Um but I don't know what to make of that. It sounds like it could have been it could have been Richard or it could have been the person that they think is like the stranger in the area. Yeah. yeah, lurking around. Well listen to this one. Betty Starr's son, Kenny Monero, told his mother in two thousand eight that he had been walking along the canal at night and was deliberately and forcefully pushed in by an unknown person. He managed to grab some branches and was able to get out, but he had seriously injured his foot in the process, scraping a portion of it to the bone. He told his mother about what had happened, and she did see the wound. Kenny ended up dying a year later of other causes not related to the canal. His mother decided to speak out and talk to the police after that about what had happened, but they did not seem interested in what she had to say. With the canals less accessible now due to the fencing from PG&E, suspicious deaths appeared to be moving towards the train tracks. Huh. And he never said who pushed him. He said he didn't know. It was late and he didn't see the person, but he was adamant that he was pushed in forcefully by and, and purposely by some unknown person. Huh. Which leads me to believe a serial so killer. I mean, I don't know that the police would be out there just pushing people in the canal. That doesn't... he's not a homeless person. Because he's not a homeless person, right? And a lot of people in Placer would walk along the train tracks or the canal. That's not something unusual. And they're not all homeless people. So to me, that doesn't line up that the police are just out there at night pushing people in the canal. That doesn't make sense to me. A mysterious person walking around, possibly pushing people in, that makes a little sense on some of the cases to me, especially after this account from Kenny Monero. I guess I can see that too. Once again, is it someone who had a vendetta against this person and wanted to... But what are the odds that that many people in this town have... People that want them dead in such a short amount of time and the way they're going to kill them is pushing them in the canal. That is very strange unless the vendetta is all with the same person. And then who's this person? What's the connection? But it is a small town, but still 
There's something very strange about it. I don't know what I think right now. It's an interesting, confusing one, isn't it? It really is. And now the the deaths are moving into, because now that the fences are up, they're moving towards the, the train tracks. Because it wouldn't be easy now to push somebody into the canal with those fences. And this is happening, what, a year, a few years later? So now we're just in 2010. This is in the same year as Richard Hill. Lowell Grennan, age 30, died actually in May of 2010. So this is during the time they started putting up the fences. He was one of nine kids, and he ended up joining the California Conservation Corps and loved the outdoors. He built the state's park trails and loved dogs. He had a learning disability and speech issues made job applications and interviews difficult for him, so he would often find work as house painter or other similar jobs. He would camp outside if he didn't have a place to stay. Right before his 30th birthday, he spent time with family and was excited about how he had just found a new place to live. Then on the evening of May 27, 2010, a conductor on the Pacific Railroad sees what he thinks is a pile of clothes laying across the train tracks in front of him. The train was going around 25 miles per hour and ran over what was on the tracks, also hitting and killing a dog that was just staring into the train. The train was stopped, and when they got out and investigated what was hit, they realized it had actually been a male. Lowell Grennan was later identified by a coroner. His legs had been laying across the tracks and were severed near the ankle, I believe. He also sustained numerous blunt force trauma wounds to his head and skull, plus many abrasions. He had been drinking and had a high blood alcohol level, but no history of blacking out. The death didn't sit right with his family but the police didn't investigate his death further after the autopsy report came in. It was believed that he had either passed out on the tracks, and some even told his mother to accept that he had committed suicide. About Bosco, his dog. The dog was also killed, which I know is hard. Yeah. It seems strange at first. You think, why would a dog just sit on the tracks and just not move if a train is coming? Right. So it's known that dogs with a close bond to their owner will stay with them even in situations that could harm them due to the connection and loyalty the dog has with its owner. And then that wouldn't make sense that he would put his dog through that. He was going to commit suicide. Absolutely not. And the report from the conductor stated that the body on the tracks did not move the entire time the train was approaching. So he thought it was a pile of clothes. There was absolutely no movement. Maybe he was already dead at the time. Yes, that's what I'm thinking. Or he was just unconscious. It could be, right. But the conductor even said in his report that it did not appear to be a suicide. He has no history of drinking and blacking out. Why would he all of a sudden be out with his dog and pass out? And why would he commit suicide with his dog right there, knowing it would hurt his dog? He didn't have any history of mental illness, depression. He was excited about this upcoming place to live. So there was a lot of happiness during this time. It doesn't really line up with a suicide. And he wasn't homeless either. No, he wasn't. And like I said, he just got in a place to live. Were the traumatic wounds to his head, were those also from the train. They're not going to be able to tell. If you are hit by a train, those abrasions are going to be so horrendous. It's probably going to be very difficult to determine whether that's from maybe something that happened beforehand or the train. If this is a serial killer, they found an even better way to kill their victims because now there's no evidence of any type of struggle because that would be hidden with the fact that they were hit by a train. Like that would just overtake everything. Right. It's such a violent thing to a body. Yeah. And a train is... Obviously, that's a big... It's massive, right? So it's going to cover up any maybe small wounds that would look like an attack. 
And if not, like just or, or you disguise know, just, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be disguised as a a wound from the train when it and actually then, may have not been. And the obviously police did not investigate no. this. No, they did not. Dana Bass was thirty six and died on July fourth, twenty fourteen. She was the mother of two children who had a successful job with a natural foods company. After a custody battle for her kids, she started dating a man that she was seen arguing with the night she died. Nobody was interviewed regarding what they had seen that night. Her friends stated that she was not suicidal the night she died. The autopsy report on Dana mentioned soil and material beneath her fingernails and on the hands like the other one with David, but nothing was mentioned regarding whether or not there had possibly been a sexual assault. Blunt force trauma to the head was the cause of death. Her family and friends stated that not a single investigator came to speak to any of them. Wow. They, I mean, whether the police are involved in this or not, they are doing a horrible job at investigating any of I mean, they're not doing anything. Yeah, I agree. Just on the the basic investigation procedures, they're failing these victims. So whether they're yeah, whether they're involved directly or not, it's like they, yeah, we don't they're know. really dropping the ball here. They don't care clearly. It confuses me why these are all people who are successful and they have families and lives, and they're still trying to just. But maybe their status in life is not as high as some others in the community, so the police just don't feel the need to investigate further, and that's. Is Auburn, is it a very, like, rich neighborhood, or is it... It's a small town, but I would say that there's definitely a wage gap. So you have some people who live in very nice homes. A lot of people are coming to Auburn from the Bay Area to get away from the city, and so Auburn mm. is attracting a lot of that. There's definitely people that live very well in Auburn and have big homes and make lots of money, but then you still have the other people in that community that are not making a lot, and it is a struggle, and you have the homeless. I see. So it's still like a divided yes. community. Okay. Ronnie Daniel Jr., 34, died August 6, 2014. He was the only son of Judy and Ronnie Sr., he had a job and a house, and then he would walk home down the train tracks from downtown Auburn to his home, since it was a straight shot. And a lot of people did this, so this isn't unusual. It was because there wasn't sidewalks in this area, but people would just walk along the train tracks because you have huge space to walk. Instead of walking on the street and possibly getting hit by a car, they would just walk along the train tracks to get to their house. Hmm. So it's very common. That's not unusual. And he went bowling with friends one night. When he was found by the train, he was lying with his head on the rail and he was decapitated by the train. Oh, wow. What are the odds of that happening? Yeah. Like he must have been positioned that way. That's what I'm thinking. Because in his backpack, they found some items he picked up from the store that day. And one of them was a can of food for his cat, Monsoon. So he had planned to feed his cat that night. Yeah. This all seems like this was premeditated stuff. It sounds like it was murder. Yeah. When the sheriff had come to Judy's home to tell her that her son was deceased, they said it had been a suicide. But keep in mind that Ronnie's body was just discovered the previous night, and it was the following morning, kind of early. So how could they already determine that it was a suicide? The police already determined it was they a suicide. They already said it was a suicide. Okay. Yep. Well, you know, it's on track for what they've been doing this entire time so well judy and ronnie senior 
went to the funeral home and were told they could only view their son's hands and forearms. On his knuckles, they saw huge bruises, and this is on both hands, but no injuries on the forearms or on the other sides of his hands. So his parents immediately believed they were defensive wounds and called the police. They sent someone out to speak to them, and the sheriff gave them the impression that because he had a misdemeanor record of getting in fights, they determined that it had been a suicide. She said that made no sense. Where would the wounds come from? Right. Ronnie Sr. actually went down to the tracks and found the exact place where the paramedics treated his son. And there were still gloves all over the area, you know, from the police and the paramedics. And he had even found body parts of his son. So the police hadn't even cleaned up the area. And they hadn't gathered all of the evidence, obviously. They don't care. No. They just don't care. And his father also went and talked to one of his coworkers who had seen him that night that he died. And she said he was agitated about something and like he was possibly going to get in a fight. She thinks that he did end up getting into a fight with somebody that evening and that is how he died. So again, he wasn't committing suicide. He was murdered. If they would actually like look at these crime scenes and And talk talk to to some witnesses, they would uncover a lot of things that make it not a mysterious death, but a possible homicide. They just don't care. What other explanation is there? You got it. Calvin Kelly, 21, was hit by a train on October 25th, 2015. He was a hard worker with multiple jobs, was in a band, and was a father to a little girl named Evangeline. The night he died, he had been hanging out with his best friend and bandmate at a local restaurant and bar and decided to go see a concert. And so I guess it was a rap concert and his bandmate and best friend said they didn't really like rap music. And so he just went to the concert on his own. And there is video footage of him at the concert in the crowd, seemingly enjoying the music, having a good time. Afterwards, he headed to his house using the route along the tracks, as he had done before many times. His parents then end up getting a call early the next morning that their son was pulled from underneath the train and was at Sutter Roseville. Their son was comatose for a few weeks and had to be removed from life support. His family went out to the train tracks and found blood in several areas in and around the tracks to include drag marks in the gravel several feet away from the rails, which made them believe that he was attacked and placed on the tracks unconscious. Everyone interviewed in the documentary regarding Calvin's death stated that the police didn't investigate at all and even lied to them about gathering evidence such as his cell phone. It was later determined that it was never recovered. Other statements included witnesses who were quote-unquote uncooperative, so they closed the case. However, local businesses, the train conductor, friends and family all state that nobody ever came to speak to them, even though many of them said that they told the police they would assist them in any way possible. For instance, there are businesses on one side of the tracks, very near where he was hit by the train, and some of these businesses had cameras. One lady spoke on the documentary and said, I told them like let us know how we can be of assistance they never came to talk to her about anything like what anybody saw if there was you know cameras they could view nothing and did she view the cameras did she She, see anything no she never viewed them well i mean clearly now they're just making stuff up and they're literally lying to people yeah and it's obvious 
This one, I think, is the most obvious that there was an attack because of the drag marks. Yeah. And he had a bunch of bruises they show in the documentary. Like, the family took pictures of his body and rolled him over in the hospital bed to get pictures of what they clearly think was like a footprint mark on his chest or his back, like somebody had kicked him. They believe that he was beaten and then placed on the tracks. But the police never came to look at him at all. And he was by himself because he, yes. he went to the concert and then walked think home. like after he was walking home. Yeah, he was just walking home like he had done before. I think it was his girlfriend at the time. So the mother of his child said that her name was Brittany and she said that we would walk along the tracks all the time. He knew his way. It was just a common thing. Yeah. It was the middle of the night too that he was walking It was back. later at night, yeah, after the concert. And is that like the same time like all these bodies or all these crimes they suspect are committed? Like It's, it's, it's always late at night. night. Oh, and we'll get into how close together all these bodies were found shortly. Mm. Kenton Wong, a top senior forensic scientist and expert in crime scene investigation in California said there are basic standards detectives should follow when a body is found, such as being sure to cordon off the area and collecting all pieces of physical evidence. And they did not do that. Wong also said that the fact that Calvin's body was removed from the hospital as soon as he was taken off life support by Placer County sheriffs without his family's first signing a release is highly irregular. That is very suspicious. As soon as he was taken off life support, they came and got the body. To do what with it? That makes probably, no well, sense. probably to do the autopsy. But you have to sign a release for somebody to do an autopsy. Yeah. And they didn't sign the release. And that is highly irregular for any county to just go and wait for a body and then come and grab it to do an autopsy. Especially for a case they don't even care to investigate. Exactly. It's very strange. Hmm. Calvin's sister believed that such a small town didn't really have the ability to investigate crimes of such a severe nature, or that the deaths were covered up so that the town kept its appeal as this picturesque place. The Placer County Sheriff's Department and the Auburn Police Department were asked to participate in the documentary. The only response came in the form of an email from both departments separately, which simply stated that they either would not be able to comment due to it being an active investigation or just because they weren't going to. I think that sounds right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's more along the lines of, yeah, we're just not going to comment because we don't want to. There have been several controversies surrounding law enforcement in the Auburn community. In 2017, three deputies from the Placer County Sheriff's Office were prosecuted for violently beating an inmate. Susan Waters, a woman who had been banging on a door of the Auburn Police Department late at night, was found dead in the bushes near the building. It was initially reported by the police that her death was a suicide but her sister said that she was told Susan was found with her underwear in her throat. And nobody is going to commit suicide that way. So that's some bullshit. Absolutely not. Why why do they they think people would believe that? I don't know. And then her death later was ruled a homicide. But initially, it was not. And I'm sure many of you know the name Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. He was a former Auburn police officer. Hmm. I did not know that he worked. I knew he was a police officer. I didn't know it was for Auburn. It was for Auburn. Wow. In the epilogue, it is mentioned that while the documentary was in post-production, two more deaths did occur. On April 16th, 2018, a young man in his 20s was found about 700 feet from where Calvin Kelly was hit by the train. He had been dead for several months. 
Then on December 5, 2018, John Daniel Borman was hit and killed on the train tracks roughly 800 feet away from where Calvin Kelly was hit and 1,000 feet from where Ronnie Daniel Jr. was killed. So everything's in, in the same close, general area. Exactly. The family of Calvin Kelly has set up a tip line to report any information on any of the cases in this documentary. So please call 530-269-3478 if you have any information about any of the cases that we mentioned that could help the police solve them. So first, do you think there was a serial killer in Auburn, California committing those crimes? I think it's a possibility. Um, I think it could have even been, you know, the Golden State Killer. (laughs) I don't know if he was around at that time, though, because he had moved down to like North Highlands or something. So he wasn't even in Auburn. Oh, he wasn't? And plus he would rape women. This isn't like his MO. He wouldn't just push people into canals and males. They were all males. I guess that's true. Okay, well, maybe it's not him, but it sounds like it could be a serial killer. Possibly. I don't know if that person is still out there sounds like it's possible if there's no arrests being made okay connection to this well then second do you think law enforcement had a lower standard when investigating or not investigating people in the community like with lower socioeconomic status or were they just not equipped to handle all these complex death investigations since they were a small town i just think they didn't care Care? seriously like because these are people who are not homeless not like all these people were just they seem like they're middle class i mean maybe it's classist well there was at least one homeless person but the overall yeah in a different status than the other members of the community but not even all of them some of it's confusing to me david's murder like he was definitely chased and there was a struggle i think maybe that could have been something separate with this guy that nobody knows who he is or where he is sure Um, it, it could have been Somebody who was directly, specifically after him. But what about the two guys that were found in the canal? That's so strange. Yeah. And there were defensive wounds on them too. What if somebody was living or was in that area killing people that got close to the canal and that was an easy way for them to dispose of the body? Yeah. I'm sure there were some isolated incidents. Like they all maybe were not connected to a serial killer. But I do think that there was a serial killer out there, you know. Even for a short amount of time. Right. Committing majority of these. But I also think there was a ton of negligence on law enforcement's part. I just don't think they cared. Well, what about the case where somebody was thrown into the canal by allegedly undercover police? Do you think that really happened? I think it's a possibility. I mean, I don't know. But I mean, the guy testifies or he says that like, that's what he saw. Police corruption is not unheard of. That's true. Well, and they obviously had police corruption. It's documented in the courts. Yeah, exactly. It's a strange one. I think they were lacking with their investigation process. And I just think they didn't really care about a lot of these people who had died. I think when you are dealing with investigators that care and that have experience, they're going to look into things better. But maybe these investigators just weren't as educated on the process since it was a small town. This kind of thing didn't happen. And so they really didn't know what to do. And then if you don't know what to do and you don't care... That's how this kind of thing could happen. I think they just didn't care because this is what, in the 2000s? Yeah, 2000. It's like you don't really have the excuse to say you don't have the resources. You can find resources or you can ask for them or you can research, you know, what to do. But I just don't think they cared enough. Yeah. And they could even reach out to the FBI for help, too. If they thought there was a serial killer, they could have reached out. Yeah. And there were witnesses they could have reached out to. There were plenty of 
things they could have done. They did nothing. And yeah. And it's like they really did absolutely nothing on these cases. So, so it's infuriating to hear that, um, especially, I'm sure, for the families. And then it sounds like they didn't even, like, try to warn the community or anything. Like, it was no, just, like... No, if anything, they tried to kind of cover up the severity of it by yeah. saying, oh, well, it's just homeless people that are getting drunk and falling into the canal. Which is not true. Which was not true at all. But that would, I guess, maybe ease the community by, okay, well, it's not going to happen to me because I'm not homeless. I'm not drinking by the canal. So I'll be fine. And then you don't cause panic. So maybe that's why they did it. Well, it doesn't even sound like they were doing it to minimize panic. I just uh. think they didn't want to investigate it. Yeah. I think they really didn't care. And there could have been a serial killer. I think some of these deaths seem really similar. And then even the train deaths, people were walking alone at night. A handful of them were found in the same area. Yeah. That, to me, that's like somebody's there. Somebody's waiting. I wonder if it's two separate killers or, you know, it could be one where, you know, once those fences went up and they weren't able to just push people in the canal anymore, they're like, okay, well, I need to find... Another place. Another place to, to commit these crimes. I mean, it's definitely possible, or it could be two separate people, or I just don't think they're all isolated incidents. There's got to be some kind of connection. There's too much of a coincidence for all these people to die in such a short span of time in the canal, and then for the deaths to move to the train tracks as soon as the fence is up, that mm -hmm. it's like, okay, now this is happening at the train tracks. What's going on? Yeah, but that's what I think. Zero killer for sure. And police corruption. Yes. Like 99%. Absolutely. Just bad all around. Whatever happened in Auburn was scary. Yeah. I hope since then they've changed some oh. protocols. Well, look, if you watch the documentary at the end, they list all of these unsolved cases. There are so many. They only talked about these 10 because these really seem suspicious, but there's a ton of unsolved cases in Auburn. So it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. Well, Auburn, I don't know. <laughs> well, Auburn, get it together. Jeez. We hope that things are better, but if you were around during that time and you have any information, definitely call that number. Yeah. And we would like to hear your stories. If you live in Auburn now and you think that things are better, let us know. Or if you think there's still some things going on that are suspicious, let us know that too. Yeah. This was a really interesting case. Thank um, you, Kristen. This was a good one. Keep them coming. Yes. Anything else? Um, what are we coming ne covering next? Oh my gosh, what are we covering next? Let me check my... Yeah, I gotta, I gotta check it. <laughs> check my phone. <laughs> well, I don't know how much it matters since I always tend to like change it up on you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, it says I'm covering the Falcon Lake. <laughs> Which one? Oh, the Falcon Lake the episode. book you have? So I have to... That yeah. somebody gave you for Christmas? I may have a paranormal time, episode. Time to start reading. It is. Dig it is. into that one. That one's going to be an interesting one, and it'll be a good break from the heavy true crime. Yeah. Okay. Well, I may be doing the Weston Hotel murders. Oh. We'll see. That's Georgia. See? I'm back in Georgia. Back in Georgia. Go on Peachtree Street. Oh, okay. That'll be interesting. You already wrote it down? Okay. Got my little list. All right. Well. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all the socials. Freshly Brewed Noir. At Freshly Brewed Noir. <laughs> if you have any show ideas, you can send us an email at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com. Rate us five stars. And until next time.
stay caffeinated because we need to be <laughs> get hobbies and don't murder people bye bye